0: Watermark Gulf Media Hey folks, before we get started with the third episode of the Lipouts Podcast, I wanted to mention three things. First of all, a big sincere thank you to everyone who's subscribed to the podcast and for all your feedback. Thank you for telling your friends and your family and your co workers about the podcast, and thank you for subscribing. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and do that now, and please take a few seconds to rate the podcast five stars, of course, and give us a quick review. Secondly, we're going to try and have one more podcast before the holidays get here. That'll be our episode with Matt Janella from the Golf Channel. If for some reason we can't get it posted and available before the holidays, then we'll see you next year. So have a Merry Christmas or however you celebrate the holidays. We hope you get to spend it with family and friends. We wrap up this episode discussing the movie Columbus. I failed to mention, however, where you can go see the movie. It's available on Amazon Video. It really is a spectacular movie. Visually, it's out of the ballpark. So carve a couple of hours out of your time, maybe this weekend, and watch the movie. I guarantee you'll enjoy it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Forrest Richardson right now on the Lip Outs Podcast. In a world where talk is cheap, Someone should be paying you to listen to this podcast. It's the Lip Outs Podcast with your host, golf course architect, author, and former looper for the llama, Nathan Crace. And now, from deep within the recesses of the basement beneath the studio at Watermark Golf Media, the man of the hour, the tower of power, too sweet to be sour, make you say, Woo! Like Jerry Clower, ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Crace. Thank you, and welcome to the Lip Outs Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Crace. I'm very excited about today's episode. We have with us on the line the treasurer of the American Society of Golf Course Architects and a personal friend. Forrest Richardson. Hey, buddy, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Through the miracle of modern technology, we were able to start uh, 45 minutes late. I apologize for that, um, but now we've got things up and running, and it looks as though everything is good. Where in the world are you today?
1: I'm I'm back at home. I'm I'm sitting to you in comfortable Phoenix, Arizona where it's a little overcast today. We had rain last night, but it looks like it's going to be a beautiful weekend and a a great week next week, which makes all of the golf courses here very, very, very happy campers.
0: Well, it's about that time of year. I mean, you're not that far around the corner from snowbird season in that neck of the woods.
1: They're already here. I can tell by the driving habits of the people in front of me and behind me.
0: (laughs) Yes. So you're saying that the traffic has gotten much better.
1: Um, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. You can interpret that depending on where you are in the world and, and where you're from and whether you've been to Phoenix in the winter, you can interpret that any way you want.
0: You know, you know, that area out there is very interesting. I was speaking with, uh, another, a fellow ASGCA member of ours, whose name I will not mention. And he was talking about uh, living in and around the Scottsdale area and how many PGA tour professionals live out there. And he said, oh, it's not uncommon at all to be at Whole Foods or somewhere and, and bump into them or you see them in a store. And it's funny because some people walk up to him and, and ask him for an autograph. And he said, you know, I try not to bother them, And uh, I just kind of give him a knowing glance. And I said, well, what I like to do when I see someone famous who's out out in public is I make eye contact. And then I start walking toward them. And when they're thinking, oh my God, this guy's coming for an for a, uh, autograph, I walk up and say, excuse me, do you work here?
1: <laughs> well, we can tell them. There's so many, you don't even know who they are. You can't recognize them. You just know, you, but you can tell they're a PGA professional by the way they pick their coffee up at Starbucks. They they put a dime behind the cup and then they <laughs> pick the cup up and leave the dime there. So.
0: Well, what happens if the dime moves when they pick the cup up, but I guess that's interesting. I don't interesting.
1: know. I'm, I'll get I'll get back to you on that. I'll I'll send Mike Davis a note at the USGA and we'll get a ruling on that. But um, anyway, I'm happy to be talking to you.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. So you're in Arizona. You know, one I grew up in Indiana, and one thing that we had in common with Arizona at the time, and I I don't know if it's still the the same messed up time zone rules. Uh, Do you guys still? It's
1: easy here. Always. we're always on mountain standard time. We never change. So it's always easy to figure Arizona. Um, we just never change. We have to kind of adjust because we, we're always getting messed up as to what time it is in New York or LA. So, you know, half the year we're at the same time as the Pacific Coast people, and then the other half we're, we're changed. So. but we find it very easy. Oh,
0: you know, it, so. it, Indiana is a mess. I actually I grew up uh, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. And I tell people that you can tell that because I call it Louisville and not Louisville. But I grew up just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky. And Louisville is so far west in the eastern time zone that in the middle of, well, the longest day of the year in the summer, I mean, you can go out, it's daylight till 10 o'clock or just a little after. But we used all of Louisville's radio and TV stations. So we had to be eastern time zone. If you can kind of imagine that the time zone line comes down through the state of Indiana, sort of an angle to the southeast, gets a little north of Louisville, makes us big C around Louisville, and then continues on down and through uh, Georgia and down that way. And so we would have, in addition to other towns, 20, 30 miles from where I lived being in a different time zone. There were some towns who just decided, I guess they took it upon themselves back in the day, that they weren't changing their clocks. So you would literally have people 30, 40 miles from you who were two hours behind you at certain times of the year.
1: See, that just makes my head hurt. Now, I just got back from Australia, and um, I have been there once before. But on this trip, I traveled a little further west And on the train trip west, they came on in a very obscure place, I don't even know the name of it, and they reminded us to please set our watches 30 minutes behind, (laughs) because we were entering some inner time zone of the Australian time zone map, so that really messed my head up, because I was trying to figure out what time to call back to the office and to check in with projects, and... And I had to not only deal with the seventeen hours, but I had to add thirty minutes or subtract. I could never figure that out, but anyway, I'm better now, <laughs> and um I don't know why they do that in Australia, but it's it it must make them very happy down there to have thirty minute increment time zones in certain areas so
0: that would be absolutely frustrating i I do remember um again in high school, we would get out of school at three o'clock and we would drive to uh, this one school that was 30 minutes to our east so we would drive 30 minutes east and we would get there and it would be 2:30 their time so we had to wait 30 minutes for their school to get out so we could play a golf tournament there you go well enough hot time zone talk, <clears throat> excuse me, let's talk about one project that has been getting a lot of attention and rightfully so the, uh, Baylands project that you had, I thought you might could enlighten people, um, not only on the project as a whole, but what it meant for the environment in and around that property.
1: Well, it, you know, it was a, um, first of all, it was a labor of love project, which most projects you want them to be. And that one certainly was, you know, I, I worked on it. I think I, I first, uh, reached out to the city in 2009 or 10, and then I was hired in 2011. We opened the course in 2017, um, but but officially opened it early this year in 2018. But it, it was, uh, uh, you know, the basics of it It was a 1950s belly bell uh, golf course. It was one of the courses that the senior bell, William P. Bell, worked on. And then his son finished it after the senior bell passed away in 1953. And it was pretty much a pedestrian municipal course. I think in its day, in the 60s, and the 70s, it was really in its heyday. And then because it was at sea level, the conditions got worse and worse and worse. Um, And it had really turned into a parkland course. So even though it was right on the bay, right on San Francisco Bay. It had turned into a parkland golf course with um, deteriorating conditions from a variety of, of perspectives. The biggest one being the soils. It was just loaded up with uh, salts and uh, was very difficult to grow grass. Catapult ahead, the uh, there's a Creek that runs through Palo Alto that's floods chronically called San Francisco Creek. And it it really had become a nightmare in the 90s and into the 2000s and the the uh, it runs through a number of cities and so to cut a long story short the state of california finally came in and refereed and said none of you can resolve this independently because it's the creek runs through all of your jurisdictions so they created a district to solve the problem and that's when i came in right after that to to help see if the golf course could be part of that. So what we did is we took give or take 11 acres out of the golf course and that necessitated changing the golf course. And that led to a discussion with the city about, you know, if we're going to change six holes, what if we changed all of them? And then that led to a discussion. If we changed all of them, could Forrest Richardson find a way to get a few acres for other uses besides golf? And, um, so in the end, you know, I like to use this cliche, win, 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 which is something I've used for a long time and you hear it a lot, but this was probably four wins, win, 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 win. so, um, we got flood protection. We completely changed the golf course and transformed it from parkland, non-indigenous trees to heritage, California, uh, trees that belong by the bay more wetlands less turf made room for the the you know flood control and i got the city of palo alto 10 and a half acres of land for other uses so they got a new golf course in the process and 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 that 10 and a half acres by the way if it was here in phoenix you know it might be worth you know four or five million dollars right um in palo alto <laughs> at 10 and a half acres <laughs> is worth, uh, depending on who's doing the calculation, it could be worth as much as 60 to $80 million. So it, it really was a rewarding project, I think. Um, you know, it's the first time in my career I've had the Audubon Society and the Save the Birds people and the Save the Bay people and, and all sorts of environmental groups standing up in meetings saying, what a great project, let's do more like this. And so you know, it couldn't have been greater from that perspective. And, uh, you know, the results, I'll let them speak for themselves, but I mean, so far the reviews have been great. People are having a good time. I am really, really, really interested in scoring success. I think, I think when people have scoring success, they have fun. And when golfers have fun, they're, they're probably experiencing uh, successful scoring. So, that was my that was my concept going into it and you know I'm I'm hoping it continues it's 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 been real fun to see it open I can tell you that
0: Well that sounds great you know I was just looking at some of the the uh, statistics on the golf course and a 40% reduction in managed turf 35% reduction of potable water use and then, of course, the 10 and a half acres for the, uh, the future athletic center and recreational use in addition to the flood protection. That's, that's uh, significant. And I like the fact well, that Well,
1: and you- we, got, we got a new golf course. I mean, you know, that, that, that was the, the, the biggest win of all. I mean, it, it, it pays homage to what was there, but it, it's a totally different experience. You know, we brought in a half a million yards of dirt. That was another win, by the way, is they were building a big medical center addition at Stanford. And so we brought in most all of the dirt from that project. And if we hadn't have taken it, it would have had to be trucked another 15 or 20 miles. And and that alone was uh, not only a carbon uh, offset that was really positive, but I like to say that I now have a golf course with very smart soil.
0: <laughs> well, it, I also liked how you referenced the, uh, the people who are I guess collectively referred to as the environmentalist that sometimes I think people assume that golf course architects and environmentalists bump heads. But I have found uh, during the course of my career, when you find the right people and everyone's willing to sit down and work something out, you can really accomplish a lot. And you just can't walk into a meeting assuming the person on the other side is, is there to stop whatever you're trying to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, in this case, the, our biggest issue with this project was um, state permits from California. And, and that, without getting into the details of that, it was, it was largely political and territorial. And it didn't have a lot to do with the golf course and what we wanted to do. It had more to do with the flood control project, which, which was a, uh, it, you know, I, I thought at the beginning that that was an animal unto itself. And, and, uh, I was really wrong about that because the golf course was enabling the flood project, but at a certain point, the state looked at them as almost one project. And, and that was, um, uh, I have lots of words to describe that. I mean, one of them, I think it was very unfair. Um, and I'll go on record as saying that because the, you know, the city of Palo Alto should be allowed to improve and fix its golf course independent of what's going on nearby. And, um, so we were, we were, you know, just without getting into the weeds, we were held up a good two years beyond what we should have. And that's a shame because during that two years, the golfers lost, the environmentalists lost, we used water, we had more turf. Um, the habitat wasn't as rich and, and, uh, you know, all I can say is that I'm, I'm really glad Wisdom prevailed in the end, and, and everyone came to the table, and we not only got it done, uh, but but what started it all was getting those permits that were exceedingly important, as anyone knows in this business. Right. You, you can't just go do things. I wish you could sometimes, but you can't.
0: Well, and… I've seen pictures of the work, and it it looks amazing. And for those uh, listening, the website is baylandsgolflinks.com. That's B-A-Y-L-A-N-D-S, baylandsgolflinks.com. So if you're in the area, maybe you're traveling to the area, check it out. Get online, maybe make a tee time, and go see forest work for yourself.
1: Well, it's nice of you to to promote that. I mean, you know, one of the things that I know from doing a lot of work up in that area of California is that there is sort of a vacuum of not a lot of really good must-play golf on the public side of things from about San Francisco, the city proper, all the way down to Pasatiempo in uh, Santa Cruz. And so this sort of rights that wrong, and, and we've been very excited about the response to it. So now in that large, vast area known as Silicon Valley, we now have a destination, uh, must play golf course. So that's exciting.
0: That is exciting. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit, but tying this back into Baylands, you mentioned that you freed up 10 and a half acres. Um, I'm curious the par of the golf course and the yardage, was it relatively the same? Was it, uh, did you have to kind of shave a stroke off par to save up room or how did you get to that point?
1: Well, at the original the original plans we did took it to a par seventy one. It had been a seventy two, and then we preserved yardage at at sixty eight hundred, give or take, but about sixty seven hundred, little well, between sixty seven and sixty eight. Kind of that was the original plan, and um, and and they kept asking if the first hole, which was four hundred and fifty yards, give or take, could be a par five, and and so we added some tees. And I kind of said, sure, you know, if you want to make it a par five, make it a par five. You know, it's I think it it's a good four. It could also be a good five because it plays into the wind in the afternoon. And it's certainly strong enough to be a par five after uh, noon most days, maybe a short par five, you know, if you're playing in the morning. So what we ended up with was 6,800, give or take, or 6,750, somewhere in there, par 72 which was their choice, not mine, and I, I, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. I, I did have the idea. No one really liked it, but I thought it was pretty creative that it, it could be a par 4 up until 12 noon Pacific time, and then it would become a par 5. And um, I thought that certainly, why isn't that doable? I mean, if Mike Davis can change pars at the U.S. Open uh, at Chambers Bay, from one day to the next why can't balens have a par 4 and 5 that changes by the clock but um as you can imagine that didn't get a warm uh, response from the northern california golf association <laughs> raiders uh but neither neither did my 14th hole there. the 14th hole has two greens a left and a right now the left green i want to say it's 340 and the right green is like 345 but they couldn't be more diabolically different. The left green on 14 hangs out on the edge of a wetlands, and it's really small. It's the smallest green out there. It's about 3,800 square feet. And the right green, and it's, and it's completely unprotected, so it's, it's this shot kind of crosswind to a plateau that's surrounded on three sides by wetlands. The right green on 14, which is just a hair longer, plays to a punch bowl, and I mean, you could literally close your eyes and hit the ball, and it would probably find its way toward the bottom. So, that one was really difficult to rate. Um, I understand what they did is they gave each hole a rating to each green, and then they averaged it. Go figure. Okay. You know, well,
0: so I'm mean, sure. They're, well, they're numbers
1: I, guys, right? Numbers guys. So,
0: I like the idea of uh, changing the par at uh, at noon, or if you're visiting from Australia at twelve thirty. Um, and change the <laughs> well,
1: it would it would certainly put an importance on um, pace of play and um, and getting a, the right tee time. You know, it would it would be a little funky for the foursome that gets up to the tee at eleven fifty eight, and then Nathan, you know, plays it as a par four, and Forrest plays it as a par five. But anyway, <laughs> that be I digress. My but anyway, it's it, to answer your question, it's um, it, it's not a long course, and that was by design. I mean, you know, the, the temptation when you do these. Transformation projects is you know I, well I think there's a, a temptation on the client's part many times, and the uh, single digit handicap member you know who's on the green committee is to say oh well you know we're going to transform the course let's get it to seventy one hundred yards or whatever that was not my um, uh, thankfully it wasn't my directive given to me and it was it was something that I really avoid it at every turn. I wanted a golf course that you could make difficult if you wanted to. And there's plenty of opportunities to do that with green speeds, tees and, and hole locations. Uh, but I didn't want it to be a big monster. So, you know, most people are going to play that course at 6,200, 6,300 yards, and they're going to have a great time and plenty of challenge.
0: Sure. That's, I actually wrote, back when I was writing a, a regular column every month, I wrote a story years ago, and, and we'll put a link to it on the com website, but it was called 8,000 Yards with a Bullet, and it just seemed like golf courses were 7,000 and 7,100 and 7,200, and this was 15 years ago. And I, one of the things that I mentioned was that, you know, when you go to a new golf course the better players grab the scorecard, but they've never played it before. The first thing they do is they flip it over and look to see how long it is from the back tee. Um, and I, th- I think not only did that drive up cost of construction and and land and, and maintenance, but it, it really just made things, I don't know, kind of got into almost a space race like the United States and the Soviet Union got into uh, decades ago.
1: Yeah, I think length is, is definitely not a trend going forward. Um, and, um, I I think that what gets printed on the scorecards very often can't be believed anyway. Uh, So, you know, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I, I, am not saying that you couldn't have a longer course at a higher altitude or, or depending on the membership or who's playing there. But I mean, this, this golf course is, there's plenty of fun and excitement out there at 6,500 yards, let's say, um, it it doesn't need any more yardage. It's got a lot of going on with it, really.
0: You and you mentioned that you know they sort of maybe insisted might be a strong word, but that they wanted wanted a par seventy two and not a par seventy one. I'm actually uh, working through the same situation right now with a client where they have an existing golf course and it's a par seventy two, but it's you know, 6,600 yards, and my plan, my idea was to rearrange a couple of holes and actually create a par 71. It's a much, much better par 71, regardless of the yardage, than it was a par 72, and and the holes are a little more dynamic. You know, I think you're right. People have finally come back around to realizing that the number one thing that makes a golf course great is not the yardage from the back tees, where most people aren't playing from anyway. It's the fun factor and the, the thing that keeps them coming back.
1: Yeah, well, and 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 you know, we it, it's too bad we don't play more match play in the United States, um, but <clears throat> that that would be, I mean, you you know, match play basically doesn't care what par is, and and the only thing that par really answers for people is um, kind of you know being able to really address stroke play and address handicaps and things like that, which I understand, but. Um, I'm in agreement with you. I'm, I, I think par's a little overrated and, and you know, I, I mean, you, you know, I like, I like golf courses and designs that, um, you have a bunch of different ratings and different pars. I mean, you know, I, I play golf with a few guys who anything under 500 yards is a par four for them. And, um, so why not just change the par for everybody? You know, depending on, you want to go play this golf course? The toughest it'll play. Go play sixty-eight hundred yards, par sixty-eight, and um, and that's fine, you know. But Forrest wants to go play sixty-eight hundred yards, par seventy-four. That's what I'd <laughs> rather play. So
0: well, anyway, it, it, you know. Speaking of match play, um, did you get a chance? I, I don't know if you were probably in Australia at the time. Did you get to watch the match with Tiger and No, Phillips? I
1: got back. I got back. I I did watch it, and and I'll give you a little feedback. Um, I had a sister-in-law. A daughter and a and a daughter daughter's fiance all uh, not really golfers but understand golf because of my uh, work in golf and they were absolutely fixated at the television they, they could not leave the match they were they thought it was so cool that two guys were playing head to head and there was money involved <laughs> and that there was that they they were miked. And, um, and, and I, I, I was, uh, in infatuated with it, perhaps not as much actually as they were. And I just, I just found that an interesting thing. I think that the pundits who said it wasn't going to be good. And even the complainers, I, I read some nonsensical, uh, thing on Yahoo, you know, the world's greatest authority in news on, um, what they thought of the match and how terrible it was. And I thought that this was literally a day after I had seen the sister-in-law, the millennial daughter, and the millennial daughter's fiance, absolutely mesmerized by what was going on. And I thought, yeah, this is good for golf. And I, my prediction is that it was good for golf because it was, it was fun and right. entertaining, and there was money on the line, and it was just fascinating.
0: Well, I, I got a kick out of listening to all the side bets. And, and it, just depending on who you talk to, half seemed to really like it. About half seemed to find some problem with it. Uh, the Really, the only issue I had, I mean, yeah yes it's entertainment you have to, it's not a major so you have to go into that taking it for what it's worth you don't go see a movie that is a shoot-em-up action thriller and, and expect to see an oscar-winning uh event you take it for what it's well, worth but
1: i think they're gonna work on it i mean they're gonna they're gonna do some things to make it better and i think we'll see more things like that um and you know i'm not sure the price was right on pay-per-view that that was a fiasco as you know anyway but right um, Right it' certainly you know i I read something the other day because i have been very interested in what the audience was, and it looked like it was a massive audience and if it if they had charged twenty bucks a pop uh a t and t uh w- it would have made up pretty well, so anyway, what can you say
0: sure no i I think my I guess my biggest issue with the whole thing, and I was getting bits and pieces of it because I was I can't remember where I was, but I was not stationary I was bouncing back and forth between a couple of places, trying to catch it on my phone uh, as a catch as catch can. But I, I would love to see them have actual golf commentators, maybe lead the team because they were having all these interesting conversations uh, with each other and, and some of the rules officials and the people walking around and the crew, which kind of talked over them. And, and again, not their fault. They're not used to covering golf.
1: Well, but, it, I think they're going to make some improvements and, um, I thought some of that was okay, but I I agree with you. It it needs some improvement, and I'm sure there are people working on that. And uh, um, I'm sure there were also people that got fired for messing up on collecting the twenty dollars, you know. But
0: uh, (laughs) uh, you know, anyway,
1: I thought it it was fun. I would, I would, uh, I would do it again. I would watch it again.
0: You know, in the podcast that we recorded before this one with uh, Pat Jones from Golf Course Industry Magazine, we touched on this just a little bit, and I told him, you know, how much fun would it have been if you could substitute Tiger and Phil with Lee Trevino and Chichi Rodriguez in their prime and mic them up (laughs) and all the interaction that they would have had. And for those uh, younger listeners, you have to go Google those guys, but uh, just the interaction that they would have every day with fans if you had them mic'd up I'm mean, that that's true pay for tv uh if you ever had it
1: well and the, and the predecessor to this was was of course the uh, the, the the shootout in the desert it started at, at desert mountain golf or uh, desert um, highlands golf course but before that if you go back to the 60s and 70s was shells that's right. wonderful world of golf and that's right. uh, those were there wasn't money on the line, but I'm pretty sure Trevino did one of those. I can't remember who he played, but it's a hoot to watch. So, yeah, go Google that or, um, or or go buy a DVD of the Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. I have a few of those in my library, and they are really entertaining, even without the money on the line, because there's joking going on, and, and uh, right. uh, uh, it's 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 really fun match play for the most part.
0: You know what I miss is the skins game when I guess back in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, because, you know, I was – I see a kid, I was in high school and, um, it was mesmerizing to me because, you know, the first couple of years I didn't realize it was taped. You know, I would, I could sit, sit there in the living room in freezing cold in Indiana. I guess it was what what, uh, Thanksgiving day weekend when they would show it, sit there. And I would look at this golf course out in the desert where everything was dormant, but they had all this beautiful overseed and just the contrasting colors. And I had never seen anything like that, uh, growing up playing municipal golf courses as a kid around indiana and it was just the angles and the just the golf course and the vistas and then of course the competition itself but you know that was really i just i look forward to that every year
1: i misspoke i said the shootout in the desert i meant to say the skins game and that that was what i was talking about and that the first skins game as i recall was played at desert highlands the uh, nicholas course which was his first work in the desert and um that was just an awesome match. I agree with you. It was fun. I remember I remember watching it. It was, it, it was awesome.
0: It was a lot of fun. Speaking of courses in the desert, uh, let's circle back around a little bit and talk about mountain shadows. We've talked about shorter golf courses and golf courses that, were, uh, that are more entertaining and more fun, and, and you don't feel like you've been beat up when you get done playing. But I've been looking at a lot of pictures of, of that. I'm looking forward to getting the opportunity to get out there next year and, and try it out. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that project?
1: Well, it's eighteen holes, par three, and then there's a bonus hole between seventeen and eighteen. We we call that well, they named it the Forest Wager. So I'm, I was very honored to have them name it that. But I, on the on the plans, it was called seventeen point five, and uh, that hole is a par two, and it's meant to be a little bonus hole that kind of takes up the the uh, little span between seventeen and eighteen where you where you kind of walk to get to the eighteenth tee, but um, you know, it was a, it was a rewarding project for me in many regards. It was right in my neighborhood. But secondly, my mentor, Arthur Jack Snyder designed the original course at that property in 1960. And, um, he had two par five fours rather back then as par 56. They were all par threes except two par fours and they were very short. And, um, before Jack passed away in 2005, there had been rumors of, one day rebuilding the course. And and Jack and I talked about whether the par fours should remain. And I think he was very comfortable with getting rid of them and just, you know, going with all par three holes. So when the project came to fruition in 2008 and nine, and then it got put on temporary hold because of the economy came back in 2014. um, We decided with the developer that the two par fours would go away. So uh, we have 18 par threes. They're all different, uh, made different by not only their length, but their orientation to being slightly uphill or slightly downhill or around the pond in the center of the property. And, um, and also more so by the greens. So each green has a real unique personality. And uh, no two greens are really alike. And the holes play from... 75 yards to just under 200 and uh, again it goes back to what I said earlier scoring success Um, I really feel that someone that's never played golf before could go out there with a little bit of help from their cart partner and probably have a lot of fun you know the ball will kind of bounce around and find its way somewhere most mostly good and yet (laughs) Um, They have a skins game there every Tuesday where a lot of the pros and assistants and first assistants, second assistants, whatever, play from throughout the Valley. And this time of year, that'll get up to 40 and 50 players on a Tuesday. And about every third week, a hole-in-one wins the skin, and it can be as high as three or four grand. So it's become a very, very popular course among these really good players. Who, um just love it you know I mean they just go out there and and just have a, a ball so it's been a it's been a home run from a lot of perspectives it it, um, it we reconfigured the course it's 13 and a half acres of turf reconfigured it from its original footprint of 40 acres down to 33 and that seven acres probably generated uh, 60 to 70 million dollars of retail uh, price uh, residential real estate in the form of condominiums and resort units. So wow. it, it's been very successful and, and, and it's triggered a new thought that I'm really promoting called uh, the cost per yard of golf courses, the revenue per yard of per, uh, golf courses, and then the profit per yard. And then we also look at that on a time basis. What, what, is, the, what is the cost that the player's paying per minute? And what's the revenue I'm generating per minute and what's the profit I'm generating per minute? And I can tell you that Mountain Shadows at 2,400 yards comes in at the profit per yard way, way higher than an 18-hole regulation course just around the corner Um, because their cost is exceedingly greater and their their revenue is not all that much greater for 7,000 yards. So when you figure it out per yard, you're really getting a bang for the buck. But it's, it's been fun, and I, I look forward to getting your, your personal unbiased review when you play it next year.
0: I guarantee it will be unbiased. unless somebody puts me with uh, Todd Quitnow again. No, I'm kidding. I do want to ask you, we're going to shift gears a little bit and kind of move away from golf. Um, but I, I want to tease this. I don't want you to answer it just yet, but your daughter Haley has really become a uh, star of film and, and the small screen. And I want to talk a little bit about, uh, what that means for, for you and, and, the changes you've seen there. But first, while you think about that, I want to talk about our sponsor, HavePaintGunWillTravel.com. You know, Christmas is just around the corner, and everybody listening to this, you're either a golfer yourself or you have one on your Christmas list. Don't just get another dozen balls or a glove or a hat or, or heaven forbid, one of those little plastic clickers where they're supposed to keep their score. Nobody really uses that. Go to HavePaintGunWillTravel.com. We have these great little magnetic ball markers, ball caps with a unique logo on them. You can't find them anywhere else. They're only available online and only at HavePaintGunWillTravel.com. When did she really, when she, I assume like most parents, your, your kids, when they're younger, you kind of get a feel that they're athletic or they're artistic or they're musical or they, you know, everybody just kind of seems to have this almost genetic programming down one path or the other. But when did you realize that, uh, you know, she may have been maybe destined for bigger things?
1: Well, she was always interested in drama and she was uh, really gravitated toward dance and, uh, you know, throughout elementary school into middle school and then in high school, dance was really her passion. And it was toward the middle of the high school years that she, um, made a plea, uh, was created a PowerPoint, came to mom and dad and said, look, you know, if I'm going to pursue this career in entertaining and dance, I need to be in uh, Hollywood. And, So she had won a scholarship about that time to dance out at a a dance studio in uh, North Hollywood called Millennium, and uh, it was two weeks. And so we took her out there, and during that time, she met with a variety of people um, and contacts, and lo and behold, she got an agent in the dance world, and then she met uh, some people in the acting world. And, and shortly after that, she started doing auditions. And even though I knew she had a lot of talent, you know, I think as a parent, you're, you're, you're very, uh, worried would be a good word probably, or, or maybe you're optimistic, but you're cautious, you know, about, is this really, does this really have a possibility of working? But I tell parents, all the time that, you know, cause they ask, you know, how the Haley got her start. And it, it wasn't, and it isn't really about being in the right place at the right time that, that can help, I suppose, but it's really determination, talent, how much drive that kid has, you know, or that young adult has. So she, um, finished high school, the, the story continues that she finished high school online we made arrangements to get a place there. So we kind of went back and forth and we let her finish out high school and she got pretty busy. And instead of dance, which was what she thought she was there to do, she took more to acting and her breakthrough in, in acting was really a movie called the last survivors, which, um, she was cast in, um, really a long shot sort of situation, but it was a very small movie, independent film, but, uh, she learned a lot and really worked hard at that. And, and that then took her to new heights because from there she got representation and she had credibility and she had something to show. So, um, but she worked very hard and, um, And, and she still does. And, and, uh, you know, you're right. Her, her career is, uh, just amazing. And it's so fun to watch it and to, uh, see it unfold and to know that we had, you know, a a part in it, although it's hard for us to take credit because it it isn't, it wasn't our determination. We weren't, we weren't pushing her at all. Um, we were just there to support her, guide her and raise her. And then when she turned 18, you know, we just sort of handed handed <laughs> everything over to her. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, you know, mom and dad only have so much resources, right? So we said, you know, hey, this is this is the time that either you're going to make it or you're going to, if you want to stay in Hollywood, you know, you're going to have to work at a restaurant. And um, in her case, that, that never was the case. I mean, she just was... Um, you know, but right about the time she became 18, she just became super, super, super busy. And uh, so it's been exciting.
0: Well, that is exciting. And I, you know, I liken it a little bit. You can tell when a person has kind of that motor or that grit and that uh, ability to self motivate that, you know, they're going to be okay. And, and you can tell that even at a younger age a lot of times. But I see so many parents forcing their kids into to playing a sport where they almost play you know they're living their life vicariously through their their son or daughter because maybe they didn't get a chance to do something when when they were younger and we've always told our kids my wife and I have three children and we've always told them we encourage them to play sports get tired of it halfway through the season tough you're gonna you're gonna finish the season because you owe it to your coach and your teammate you know if you get tired of a particular sport at the end of the season, then step away from it. But, you know, those types of activities are great, especially when they want to take it upon themselves. And the fact that, you know, Haley, you know, had that motor and put the work into it so that when those opportunities did arise and, yeah, right place, right time, but it's amazing how much being prepared can make those times even uh, righter, if that's the, the, the proper way to say it. But,
1: well, I think, you know, it's, an, it, it, it's, I think it can work out sometimes. You know, I played baseball with some kids that were really, really pushed by their parents and, um, and I think they became good athletes, you know, but uh, in this case, I don't, I don't think it works as well on, uh, on what she's doing, but it's been fun to watch. So we, we, we have a really good time um, enjoying it and it's, uh, it's, it's a tough business, I'll tell you that. It's, I, I tell her all the time. Being an actor is just about as tough as being a golf course architect. Of course, that gets some responses <laughs> that uh, I won't go into here. But
0: well, their paparazzi is a little less aggressive than ours. Other than that, I can see where you're, <laughs> I can see where you're going with that.
1: Well, I'll I'll make note of that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, one movie that I do want to point out, and uh, for a couple of reasons, the movie Columbus, which came out I guess in 2017, about Columbus, Indiana where I grew up maybe oh, 20 or so miles from there, uh, known a lot for its architecture, but I watched some of the film. I, I didn't get to sit down and watch the whole thing, but just the uh, visual aspect of that film and the way it was shot, very compelling the way that, that, that the movie looks on the screen.
1: It was, it was uh, one of certainly my favorite films that she's done, and Koganada, the director, uh, he, he, he was the writer, the director, and also ended up editing the film, and um, I think that uh, it, you're right. It's just striking visuals, and every every scene was um, was his vision. And uh, it's a beautiful film. It's a quiet film. It has a nice message. Um, you know, it's no chase scenes or or loudness to it. Lots of dialogue, but it's a it's a beautifully written, directed film, and and uh, it, I think. Uh, everyone that was involved in it just had a great time with it, which what more could you ask for, right?
0: No, in fact, um, and I can't remember the main character, the the character who came because his, his dad was the one who got sick, and I can't remember the character's name in the movie, but when they first met, and he's speaking Korean, and they're on opposite sides of this wrought iron fence, and then when they start to have a conversation, they start to walk along and this fence is between them the entire time they're talking. And then just as they kind of realize they have some type of connection or uh, something in common, they walk up to this opening in the fence. And I thought, you know, that's, yeah, it's a beautiful scene. And and, and,
1: and if you watch the movie, if you watch the movie a few times, you'll, you'll understand that almost all of the scenes in Columbus were locked down camera scenes where the camera's not moving at all. And so I don't know the total number, but I mean, if you looked at the total number of scenes in the film, almost all of them are locked down camera. The camera doesn't move. And what makes that scene so rich was Koganata's, uh, breaking out and having the camera move and then coming to a stationary stop at the end of the fence. So, um, I know if he's, listening or if he ever listened to this and I don't believe him to be a golf course architecture uh wonk that he might but I can guarantee you that he would just be smiling from ear to ear um I I got to spend some time with him at, at some of the events and opening and things and he's just a just a wonderful person and is one of those people that just absolutely gets a thrill out of the kind of thing that you as a viewer just responded to
0: well, and again, this is not a golf course architecture podcast. It's just golf centric. So who knows? Maybe he'll listen. You can let him know about it. You know, we're coming up here, and and we've done it once again. I keep saying we're going to go thirty to forty minutes, and but I do appreciate you uh, taking the time on a Friday afternoon. I'm sure you have plenty of things that you can be doing, but uh, I want to thank you for coming on.
1: It was it was fun, and I uh, I always like talking about uh, golf and stuff, and um, and it's even. It's even cool to weave into it some personal stuff. So I appreciate the time, and it, I couldn't have, I couldn't have filled my Friday afternoon, Nathan, with anything better. So how about that? Is that a good way to wrap yeah. it up?
0: Yeah, we'll take that out in post and use it as a promo. But be sure to check out Forrest on Twitter and his website, which is golfgrouplimited.com. But that's golfgroup LTD. Dot com to see what Forrest has going on. Again, check him out on Twitter. You can check me out on Twitter and give us a follow at LipOuts. You can follow the podcast and like it on Facebook, both at Lipouts Podcast. And of course, the website is lipoutspodcast.com, where we will have links to all of the things we talked about here today. Forrest, thanks once again for coming in. I really do appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thank you. So, for Forrest Richardson, everyone here at Watermark Golf Media, I am your host, Nathan Crace, saying thank you so much for being with us. And we'll see you back here next time when we tee it up on the Lipouts Podcast.
1: Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Watermark Golf Media. All rights reserved.